Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. Please have a seat. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word this morning as we're continuing through our series in the book of Jonah. Before we get to the book of Jonah, I want to wish you a happy Father's Day for all of you dads here. Now, if you've been coming to Grace for any number of years, you know that we don't set aside specific holidays and preach Father's Day sermons or Mother's Day sermons. Christmas and Easter, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go there. But uh, we do want to wish you happy Father's Day. Uh, and our Heavenly Father is a gracious and loving Father. But the reality is, is not all people in the world are God's children. Now, some of you are thinking, now, wait a minute, I thought that all people are God's children. Well, in a sense, in a sense that we are all created in His image, we bear God's image, we are children in a sense. But not covenantal, relational children with the rights of sons and daughters. Uh, John says in his gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 12, yet to all who received him, that is Christ, he gave them the right to become children of God. Jesus says later in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, he says, you can't see the kingdom of God, you can't even enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again, born of water and the Spirit. So it is the Spirit's work to bring children of God into a covenantal relationship with him. It is our role as children of God to declare and demonstrate the gospel that God might use the proclaimed word and the witness of his love through his people. This morning, we are very privileged to have two of uh, our field staff families here with us, the McIntyres, not their real names, but they serve uh, the Muslims in West Asia uh, McIntyre's, not your real names. Could you just wave and make sure you say hello to them. Uh, thank them for serving our Heavenly Father in a part of the world where there is a lack of a gospel witness. We also have with us uh, the Ludviceks. I do not believe they are here in this service. They serve with Mission Aviation Fellowship in Indonesia, and they are both a part of our body just serving elsewhere. I want to invite you to meet both of those families, talk and pray with them today in room 304-305 on the East Wing immediately after this service at 11 a.m. So that would be an opportunity for you to meet them, to greet them, and to pray with them, and to intercede for our other, other missionaries, our other field staff as well. Let's go to the Lord and let's ask Him to, uh, to use both of these families. Father, we thank You for the McIntyres serving you in a Muslim nation, Lord, where there is a lack of gospel witness, a lack of gospel presence. We thank you for the Ludvicek, which uh, he is a pilot and he serves in, uh, to, the, to the tribes which don't know the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would use both of these families to declare and demonstrate your gospel to the lost. And Father, we pray for them that as they are on furlough, uh, that you would build into them, that you would uh, refresh them, that you would equip them, that they might be used of you. Uh, Lord, while they're here in the States, but also when they return back to the field. Father, would you prepare our hearts to have the heart of uh, a missionary, Lord? We are studying the book of Jonah, and Jonah, called to be a missionary, doesn't want to go. And that's honestly where a lot of us are. So, Lord, we are asking that you would intercede and work in our hearts as we open up your word to bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So before we get into the word, I want to thank you for your faithful giving, your tithes, your offerings. Without that, we would not be able to partner together with one another to declare the gospel here in Johnson County, let alone to the ends of the earth. So your faithful giving uh, helps us support the McIntyres, the Ludvicheks, and all of our other field staff. If you have not yet begun to give here at Grace, I want to encourage you to do so. You can go to our website at graceb3.org, and you can just click on the Give icon there, or you can give the old-fashioned way. We have giving boxes in the back. But thank you for your faithful, faithful giving. So here we go. Turn in your Bibles to Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. Here's where we ended up. So let me give you an overview. God called a prophet by the name of Jonah. He said, Jonah, I want you to go to a city, a great city called Nineveh. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. I want you to go there and I want to preach. I want you to preach the message that I've given to you. So that's what we learned in chapter one. Now, Jonah hears that word of God, that call on his life to go and to preach the gospel to this foreign city, this great city. And Jonah says in his heart, it's not going to happen. And so he gets on a ship in Joppa and he buys a passage to a place called Tarshish. Tarshish is the western tip of Spain. So Nineveh is on the Tigris River and it is the furthest most point on the globe from Tarshish. So Jonah goes exactly in the opposite direction. So last week we saw God's merciful intervention in hurling a storm against Jonah. Not because he doesn't love Jonah, but because he loves Jonah and he wants to rescue him from himself. From himself. And so the story ends, it was very depressing last week. The story ends with the sailors at Jonah's request, launching him overboard, and then that's it. So... There you have it. So we pick it up right where we left off, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So what we have here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 is a summary of what you're going to see in the rest of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is, as Zach said in the praise set, it is a prayer. It's Jonah's prayer from the belly of this fish. And he hyperlinks to all sorts of other psalms. So he's praying scripture in his dire circumstance. Is in his dire circumstance. But we can't ignore the obvious in chapter 17, or chapter 1, verse 17. There's a fish. You really can't get around this. So last week as I was preaching, uh, my phone, I keep it in my back pocket, it's silenced uh, because you text me while I preach. It happens all the time. My phone is buzzing last week. So I checked my, my phone after the service and there's probably six to seven messages. Did you see this news story? Did you see this news story? Yes, I saw the news story. Everyone has seen the news story. So this is a week ago Friday. This, meant, this scuba diver here, he's collecting lobsters off the coast of Cape Cod and all of a sudden, it's light, he can see, he's collecting lobsters, and then he feels as if he's been hit by a truck, and then everything goes dark, and he's being compressed. And he thought to himself, this is it, I'm being attacked by a shark, and then he realizes, there's no pain. I don't feel the tearing of flesh, but I'm being compressed. It's not a shark, I'm going to die, 
this way in a whale. And this lasts for about 30 to 40 seconds, and the whale grows tired of him. He just doesn't taste well, and his esophagus, he can't get down his throat. So he literally vomits him up on the surface of the water, and then he is rescued, and there he is with thumbs up. He was on Jimmy Kimmel last week, and they actually constructed a whale, a life-size seat for him to sit in as he was being interviewed. So, yeah, it happens. It happens. But here's the deal. This isn't about a fish. It's, it's not about a fish. The fish gets three whole verses in the book of Jonah, and yet VeggieTale devotes the entire story to most of it to a fish. And most of us, when we think of Jonah, we think of what? A fish or a whale. The word that's translated fish is a Hebrew word that it's, a, it's an umbrella word. It just means large aquatic creature. We don't know if it was a whale. We don't know if it was a whale shark. We're not sure what the taxonomy is. It doesn't matter. The story's not about a fish. It is about grace. The story is about the lengths that God will go to rescue someone from themselves. That's what this story is about. It is about the lengths that God will go to rescue someone from themselves. This is about a prophet, a graceless prophet, a religious man who was a, a, a child of the Hebrew people, a child of Abraham, and yet he has a heart of stone. He does not have his father's heart. He does not have his, He's a graceless man. So this story, this prayer is about God doing a work to prepare him to be brought from the depths into the light to, to, to receive God's grace, his transforming grace. So the goal this morning is that we would receive and be transformed by that grace. That's the goal. So the stated goal for this morning is that you and I, we would all hear, receive, respond to the grace of God. So I'm going to open with a question. Open with a question before we get to the text and we get into the text. Have you received the grace of God? Is a yes, no question. Don't answer it out loud. Just think about it. Have I received the grace of God? Here, here's the thing. We desire at Grace Community Church to see a thousand people come to Christ for the next five years. And we are praying in the, at seven o'clock, uh, some of the staff and some other people that gather. And by the way, please join us if, if, you feel, if you feel so inclined. We'd love to have you pray with us. Um, we were praying and one particular person said that, I believe that, uh, I don't know the number, but a, a good portion of that number will come from people who already think they're Christians. When I ask, have you received grace? There is, an, there's a, there's a, there's a tendency of people that are brought up in the church or who are religious to say, well, if, if I'm here, aren't I? I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I go to church. Yeah, well, Jonah was a vocational prophet and he was completely graceless. So there, there's no correlation between being religious and having received God's grace. God has to take us through a process, through a process by which those without grace receive grace. And so we're going to see that. Jonah chapter 2, three things that we're going to see this morning. First of all is a portrait of gracelessness. What is graceless? Easy for me to say. What does gracelessness look like? What does it look like? If you're without grace, what... What kind of mannerisms, what, what would characterize you? Second thing we're going to see is, okay, 
the way down, the way down, understanding our need of grace. What God does in the process of Jonah uh, being receiving this grace, what that descent looks like. And then the, the third thing we'll see in chapter 2 is the way up. How did Jonah respond to that grace? What did God have to do? This is a complete work of God. And if you have not received God's grace yet, it will be a complete work of God that you will respond to, but it will be his work working through you by faith. So let's open up the Bible here. Portrait of gracelessness. Turn to Jonah chapter 1. We've got to set the context here. This is, he's still on the ship. We covered this last week. He's still on the ship. But let's take a look at verse 9. The sailors in verse 8 are saying, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Remember the storm? They're like, what's going on? This is somebody's fault. Whose is it? He says, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? And here's what Jonah said. He said to them in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So portrait of gracelessness. Gracelessness can look religious. Jonah's religious, right? He's religious. But how does he view God? Jonah fears God. It's clear that he fears God. He told them. He's a prophet. He fears God, but he doesn't desire God. That's our first portrait of a graceless person. And many people that attend church, some of you here today, you would categorize yourselves as God-fearers. You're moral people. You're moral people. You want to do what's right. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But there's no corresponding desire or desire to be in the presence of God. In fact, when, when you think about God's calling on your life, it doesn't move you to draw near to Him. It moves you to draw away from Him or, or actually run away from Him. So their view of God, the graceless religious person, yeah, there's a God, I fear God, I want to be a moral person, but I don't, I don't really have a relationship with him. I, there's no closeness. There's proximity-wise, it's getting further and further away. So that's the first thing. Second thing, how does he view himself? What's he tell the, what's he tell the sailors? I am a what? What's the first word out of his mouth? I am a Hebrew. You know how many people say, I am a Christian, I am a Baptist, I am a Catholic, I am a Methodist, I am a this, I am a that, and they don't have a relationship with the Lord? Notice how Jonah does not identify himself. He does not say, I am a covenant member of the family of God, I am a child of Yahweh. He sees his primary identity as a nationalistic entity. The way, the way people say, I am a Christian. By the way, I am a Christian. Is, does that mean anything anymore? What do, you, what do you think? The word's utterly meaningless in our culture. And that's why some people, well, I like to refer to myself as an evangelical, which is even more meaningless anymore. Do you know what evangelical is? It's a voting block. It's a voting block. That's how our culture views it. So the word Christian, the word evangelical, they're becoming watered down and utterly meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Hebrew, so what? You're a child of Abraham. 
and you're running from the God of Abraham. So his chief identity, his primary identity, is, is in his tribal affiliation, not his covenantal relationship with God. This is important. This is important. It's an, it's an indication of gracelessness. The next thing we see, his view of others. Why is he not going to Nineveh? He doesn't like Ninevites. See, graceless religious people have a tendency to view people as good or bad. Now, who are the good people? Well, my tribe, of course. You know, us. We're the good people. Well, who are the bad people? Those people. Them. You know, the people not in my tribe. Jonah, as a Hebrew, perceives the world's problems as being largely a, a, an ethnic issue. Well, there's the Hebrews, we're good, and then there's the Ninevites, they're bad. The Jews are good, the Gentiles are bad. So think about this in terms of yourself, or maybe your, your Christian, meaningless word, Christian friends, in terms of what are the problems in our culture? Why is our culture as bad as it is? Well, it's, it's because we're going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, well, okay, I won't necessarily disagree with that. We're on a trajectory that way, but why? Why is our nation that way? Well, it's because of those people. Who exactly are those people? Well, you know them. The people not in my tribe. It's not certainly our fault. It's not our fault. We go to church. We love God. We just want God to take care of all those nasty Ninevites. And then the world would be a better place. He sees the world in black and white. There's good people. Oh, us, of course. And then there's bad people. Them, of course. You want to see this really flame up? Just wait until 2024. Then it's no longer on religious lines, but it's on political ideological lines. You are aware that that is a thing, right? That those people are always the bad people and our side, our tribe is always the good people. That's an indication of gracelessness. He has no desire to see those people come to know his God. And he doesn't see his people as having an issue, which is ironic because he's a prophet. And what are prophets called to do? Call out their own people. Call out their own people. So those are three things about Jonah which are indications of gracelessness. And if the shoe fits, feel free to try it on. Now here's the thing. If the shoe fits, they're cement shoes and they will take you straight to the depths. They will take you straight to the depths. This kind of life is not buoyant. This kind of life deserves God's condemnation and that's what Jonah deserves. But fortunately for Jonah, God loves Jonah enough to pursue him. He loves Jonah enough to pursue him. So how does Jonah, and how do we, how do we, um, in comparison, how do we come to know this grace? You may find yourself to be moral. You may find yourself to be drawn towards organized religion. You may even consider yourselves to be Christian. And yet, and yet, you don't necessarily desire the presence of God, but you fear God. Um, 
you, 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 uh, you view yourself in terms of your, your identity, in terms of your corporate, well, I am a Christian, uh, but you don't necessarily identify yourself as, as in Christ or born again. And then you view other people as the problem in the world, but you don't see yourself as the problem. How, how do we, if you're in that category, how do we receive this grace? We have to be low enough, go low enough to be blessed. To quote Roy Hessen in his book, Calvary Road, you have to go low enough to be blessed. For, for God to make a man, Charles Spurgeon said, he has to first break a man or woman. You have to be broken. This is the beginning of the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. He doesn't say blessed are those who have an awesome understanding of how awesome they are. No, he says, blessed are those who feel like garbage because they've taken a look at themselves in the marriage, marriage, mirror, and seen the image. Having a difficult time getting the words out today, but you you get the point. This, you got to go low enough to be broken. And it's when we hit rock bottom, that's when we meet grace. So let's take a look at, at Jonah's prayer. Let's take a look at Jonah's prayer. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Stop! Who cast him into the sea? If you were here last week. The sailors did. At whose request? His. Who's he blaming this on? Now, blame's not really the, the technical word. It's not fair to say that Jonah's blaming God. He's giving credit to God. He views this as a good thing. He views this as a good thing. Here's the way this works. Here's the way this works. Before we receive grace, you and I receive, before we receive grace, we view our suffering as an unloving intrusion. Would you agree with that? Think about something which was very painful for you. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a, uh, it could be a, a, a diagnosis, an illness, a, a, a sickness that just won't go away no matter how many times you've prayed. Or it could be the loss of a job. It could be the loss of a loved one. You could be suffering deep grief because you've lost something. It could be goals and aspirations you've had that have not come to fruition and you're just frustrated. And that's painful, yes? How do you view that pain? Before grace, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the pain, we view it as an unloving intrusion. And there are times, if you will be honest with yourself, there will be times when, 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 when the pain is at its apex, sometimes we question whether or not God loves us. Would you agree with that? We wonder if God has abandoned us and left us to ourselves. God, if you love me, you would do this. If you love me, you would answer my prayers the way I'm praying them. If you loved me, if you loved me, if you loved me. And then when we get to the bottom and we receive grace, in hindsight, we look back and say, it's because you loved me that you cast me over. Look at the, the pronouns. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. And I am driven away from your sight. But driven away, 
driven away. I thought Jonah was running away. It's not an either or. Jonah is running away, but he's being driven into the arms of God by God. God is utterly sovereign. None of this is taking God by surprise. And by the way, your sin or rebellion, God is not like going, oh my gosh, Brooks is such an idiot. I can't believe he did that. It's so shocking that Brooks would be proud. It's so shocking that Brooks would do this. He's not shocked by your sin. He's not shocked by your rebellion. He pursues you and he'll pursue you to the depths of the sea. That's how much your father loves you. That's how much your father loves you. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In his book, The Problem of Pain, great apologetic on human suffering. He says, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain is God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. So it does, it's not always heated. It's not always heated. But he goes on to say, it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Here at the bottom of the sea, God plants his flag of truth in Jonah's soul. And it's pain that brings him to this realization. It's pain that brings him to this realization. So let's take a look at verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars are closed upon me forever. So when you think about hitting rock bottom, everybody's familiar with that phrase. Well, you know, this person, he just hasn't hit rock bottom yet. What do we mean by that? We mean that a person's not ready to receive the grace of God. Well, where's the bottom, by the way, for you? It's different for everybody. It's different, for, but everybody feels it at some point. The, 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 the weeds, the seaweed surrounds them. But look at verse, verse 6 here. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's a prison. It's a prison. This is the place, this is the moment in your life when you recognize, I can't get out. I can't get out. You may be at the bottom because of your own stupidity, just like Jonah. There's a direct cause and effect. God says, go to Nineveh. He says, no, I'm going to Tarshish. Where's he at? The bottom of the ocean. In your case, it may not be a cause and effect thing. You just find yourself at the bottom of the ocean, but you can't figure out why. It's not because you necessarily are in rebellion openly against God. You're just in a cruddy circumstance. You're just in pain. You're more like Job, maybe. Job is clearly not at the bottom of the sea, metaphorically, because he rebelled. He's just in pain. His buddies are assuming he's at the bottom of the sea because he's rebelled. And they're saying, well, just confess. And Jonah's like, I don't have anything to confess. I'm righteous. Aha! That proves that you're not righteous. So in Jonah's case, he's at the bottom because of his sin. In Job's case, he's at the bottom because of a fallen world. But either way, either way, God loves both Jonah and he loves Job and he loves you. He loves you. And the point is, you get to the place where you recognize, I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do 
to undo what I've done. There's nothing I can do to go back and atone for my sin. There's nothing I can do. I can't change. I can't change me. I can't change the sea. I can't change the whale. I can't change anything. It's a sense of hopelessness. This is what Jesus is talking about when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who have come to the end of themselves. Have you come to the end of yourself? Or do you still got just a little bit more fight in you? I had a great uncle that served in Vietnam. He was one of those riverboat chiefs. I don't know if you've seen the movie Apocalypse Now, but he used to drive one of those boats up and down all of these rivers in Vietnam. Had three of them shot out from underneath him. One time he was escorting a, an officer and they, they, were, they were ambushed and there was all this fire and this guy fell in the water and he jumped in to save him. And as he was trying to save this guy, as he was trying to save this guy, this guy kept fighting him and kept fighting him and kept fighting him to the point where my great uncle became overcome by the water himself and passed out. Even had one of those out-of-body experiences until somebody pulled him up and, and then he woke up. He's, he's, he said, and I quote, I will never, ever try to rescue a drowning man. Why? Because the drowning man was fighting him. And he began to drown. Fortunately, God is a lot bigger than our great, my great uncle. You can't drown God and he will jump in after you. But he will let you succumb to the water. Because only then will you stop fighting. So stop fighting. Stop fighting. Stop running. Stop running. That's, it's funny because when I think of this, and you probably are the same way, when you think of somebody who runs to the Lord, do you think of someone who's an occupational minister? Mm, probably not. So please understand, you can be a prodigal son, you can be a prodigal son, like the prodigal son that Jesus talked about, or you can be a prodigal prophet, like Jonah. You can be very, very religious and graceless. So do not mistake religiosity for having received grace. So he meets them. He meets them exactly where he's at, at the bottom. So let's take a look at the way up. How do you receive God's grace? What's it say here? At the roots of the mountains, verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet, yet you brought me up. There's that word. There's a contrast here. Notice the semicolon, forever, and then yet. There's a contrast. Jonah's saying, here's where I was headed, and yet God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we were all born dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live when we followed the, the ways of the world with the prince of the power of the, the air. But God, rich in mercy, saved us through grace. There's, there's, you see that all the time. But God, yet, yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. God intervenes. You may feel alone at the bottom, but you are not. You are not. The grace of God is there in the midst of your pain, in the midst of our suffering, and he is pursuing. He's pursuing. Yet, you. This isn't, 
Notice what the prayer doesn't say. Yet, oh, yet I came to my senses and I knew that I was just bad. And so I resolved from that point in time to be good. And so I started to... I started to swim to the top. No, he can't swim to the top. Where's he at? He's in a fish. He's not going anywhere. The only deliverance comes from above. Martin Luther was once having a debate with another theologian called Erasmus. And Erasmus was saying, the grace of God, well, it's like, it's like a father who takes the hands of his toddler son or daughter and holds them so that the, the toddler holds his fingers and he walks. And so the toddler kind of, just kind of wobbly walks across the room holding on to the father's hand so he can get the object of his desire, which is some toy. So that's what the grace of God is. It's, it's God's assisting us to get what we desire. Luther's like, no, no. That is not the grace of God. We are worms on the earth encircled by a ring of fire. The only deliverance is from above. That's what grace is. It is not assistance. It is deliverance. Yet you, yet you brought me up. This is not Jonah's not attributing anything which is occurring to his, just his transformation is not just, you know what I decided. I decided that, you know, I need to make myself a better person. No, he was toast. He was done. He deserved death. He deserved wrath. And he was on death's door. And you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. Now, how did it happen though? So God is the one who brought him up, but Jonah's not passive. And we're saved by grace. That's all of God, but you and I aren't passive either. Paul says we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is a gift from God, but it is something that we participate in. We actually exercise it. What does Jonah do? Jonah's not passive. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered. What did he remember? What's the text say? He remembered the Lord. He used the word Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He remembers the covenant that God made with his people. He remembers the promises of God. More than that, and then he prays. He cries out, my prayer came to you. Now he physically identifies the presence of God somewhere. Where does he physically see God in his mind's eye? The temple. Now, that may or may not be significant to you, but for an Israelite, the temple is the place where the presence of God dwelled. So once a year, you have the temple and you have the holy place, and then in the holy place, you have an inner holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, it's an inner room behind a curtain. The high priest goes one day a year, and inside of the holy of holies dwelt the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid with two cherubim, their wings facing one another. And they referred to that as the mercy seat. And that's where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, dwelt. And and Jonah remembers the Lord. And the first thing he thinks of is the presence of the Lord in the temple. Now, this is significant 
Maybe not for us, because we're not Jewish, but for him, this is where the people of God came into God's presence. He couldn't be any further from the Lord's presence. Remember, why is he fleeing? To flee from the presence of the Lord. So now he's thinking about where the presence of the Lord dwells, over the mercy seat. But you can't come in the presence of God because God is holy and man is sinful. You just can't come willy-nilly into God's presence. Joe, Dad, I'm home. That's not how it works. One time a year, the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies. And then only after, he's, after he's, he's offered a sacrifice for his own sins and the sin of the people. So Jonah sees, Jonah sees his only hope in a substitute. Jonah recognizes, I deserve death. I deserve wrath. I am away from the presence of God. I called out to the Lord in prayer. I wanted to experience his presence and I thought of the temple. There's only one way a sinner lost in sin can draw near to the presence of God. If someone else takes my sin. Peter says of the prophets, including Jonah, that they spoke as God moved them along and they longed to look into things they did not understand. Jonah knows that his sin must be atoned for. And he also knows that the blood of, blood, blood of bulls and goats cannot take away his sin. But Jonah longs for and looks forward to the day when Yahweh would send his son and Jesus Christ would bear Jonah's sin on the cross and bear your sin on the cross. Jonah's sin was taken as far as the east as from the west when Jesus took his sins to the cross. Your sin was taken as far as the east is from the west when Jesus went to the cross. So Jonah cried out from the pit for deliverance, and he was heard, not because of his loud cries, but because of Jesus' loud cries. So as you languish in your pit, recognize that Jesus Christ cried out from a pit as well. I remember when I was in Israel in 2016, and we were in the place of, uh, it's, it's presumably where Caiaphas, the high priest, his dwelling was, and and there was a there was a pit where they would they would have prisoners, and there was a hole in the floor, and the, and the high priest would come to the the hole and be able to speak to the prisoners, and and there's a section in in John, there's a section in John where it says that Caiaphas talked to the high priest, and then he went to see the high priest. And you're like, wait a minute, how do you talk to the high priest and then go and see the high priest? By the way, this isn't the notes, I'm just. I'm just riffing here, so just roll with me for a second. The high priest isn't in his presence. He's above him. So he brings up Jesus. But Jesus prays from the pit. He prays from the pit. Psalm 88, just like Jonah is praying from the pit. He's praying other psalms. Jesus prayed from a pit. When he was incarcerated, when he awaited his death, Lord, deliver me from this pit. Jesus went into the pit to rescue you. He went into the pit to rescue Jonah. Something else Jonah learned here. 
Those who pay regards to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I'm going to pause right here. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Here's what Jonah figured out at the bottom of the sea. And sometimes it takes the sea to wake us up. I'm wearing, I'm wearing a millstone. It's funny when we're walking around on deck, we don't perceive the millstone, do we? When do you notice the millstone? When you're in the water. He sees now that he's an idolater. He, he comes to the realization, who knew a prophet of Israel is an idol worshiper? That's why the reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. Some of you are like, well, I, I resent being referred to as an idolater. Well, you are one, so get over it. So what do you mean? How can I be an idolater? Here's what an idolater is. Idolatry is putting anything in front of God. A graven image, your marriage, your career, your success, your, 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 your body image, your sexuality, whatever. Anything that... The first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods beside me before me, in the near vicinity of. That's what the word mean, besides means. You shall have no other gods beside me. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. You should not make for yourself an idol. That is anything that represents something which is more important than me. Okay, so you may not think of yourself as an idolater. Just roll with that for a second. Have you ever sinned, ever? Let's just have a show of hand. Yes, I broke one of the Ten ten Commandments back when I was in fourth grade and I stole a candy bar. Anybody? Anybody? Or am I the only Ten Commandment breaker? So we have 100% audience participation. We've all violated one of the Ten Commandments. Next question. Why did you do it? Because you're an idolater. Tim Keller refers to the, the, the commandment of idolatry, thou shalt not have any other gods beside me or before me and not make an idol, as the sin beneath the sins. You can't steal, you can't covet, you can't lust, you can't commit murder, you can't dishonor your mother and father, and you can't break the Sabbath without, first of all, putting something in front of God. That's how sin works. Therefore, we have all paid regard to vain idols. They're empty. We're all wearing millstones. And Jonah is just now realizing it. I thought I was a prophet. I thought I was one of the good ones. I thought the Hebrews didn't do idolatry. It turns out we do. It turns out we're no better than the Ninevites. By the way, he'll forget everything that he's learned at the bottom of the sea within a couple weeks. We'll see that in the days to come. But... At this moment, he recognizes, I'm an idolater. And that is a simultaneously humiliating and a liberating experience. It explains that the reason we're in such pain is because of sin. The reason we're at the bottom of the depths is because of our idolatry. And that's why there's hope. Because Christ has taken that millstone upon himself. He's liberated us. He's liberated us. Now, as we close, as we close, here's a few things that we can practically do. A few things that we can practically do. First of all, what did Jonah do? He cried out. Verse 1, 
Jonah prayed to the Lord. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you. Cry out to him. You know, Charles Spurgeon said the only requirement to receive grace is that you know you need it. So cry out to him. That's why the Apostle Paul says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out to him. What do I do when I call out to him? Tell him what he already knows. Tell him you're an idolater. He's not going to hear your confession and go, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Seriously, you looked at porn? Oh, I don't know if you can come into my presence. I would never do that. Well, of course he wouldn't do that. That's why he sent his son to die for our sin. You are not going to shock God with your confession. He's omniscient. He knows your sin from 20 years ago better than you remember it. And he knows your sin tomorrow. He knows it all. He bore it on the cross. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess my sin to you. Name it. Specifically, confess your idols. Lord, forgive me for putting my family in front of you. Forgive me for putting my career in front of you. Forgive me for putting my goals in front of you. Forgive me for for putting my desire for physical gratification in front of you. Whatever. I don't know what your heart is and I don't know what your idols are. Whatever they are, confess it. And then, what does he say? But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, thank him. Thank God that he loves you enough to let you suffer. Thank God that he is not some benevolent Santa Claus that just is concerned with your comfort and your happiness. Because in pursuit of comfort and happiness, mankind gets himself into all sorts of predicaments. Thank him for the waves. Thank him not just for the pain, but thank him for grace. Thank him that you can't earn it, but it's freely given. And lastly, serve him. What does Jonah say? But with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. That doesn't mean that he pays God for what God has done and then we're good. But rather, because of God's mercy, he offers himself as a living sacrifice. He goes to Nineveh. He obeys. He obeys. It's not perfect obedience. We'll see that next week. But he does obey. See, a graceless person fears God but doesn't desire God. Views themselves as better than other people. But a person who's received grace loves God and never sees himself as better than anyone else but desires to be obedient to him, that is God, and take them the good news. So have you received his grace? Have you received his grace? If not, if not, the Apostle Paul says in First, Second Corinthians chapter 6, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Make today your spiritual birthday the day when you stop fighting God 
and you came to him and you said, Lord Jesus, save me because I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for going to the pit. Thank you for conquering sin and death. And now, Lord, I offer myself to you as a living sacrifice. That's what it means to receive grace. And that grace, by the way, it's not a once-for-all thing. You were born again once for all. But that grace is transforming grace. As we'll see next week and the week to come, Jonah's not finished with his growth yet. And neither are we. Neither are we. If you haven't already, I want to encourage you to take out your cell phones and join us in the time of season of mobilization to be equipped. Text SUMMER, the word SUMMER, to the number 94253. Now what you'll receive is a, a devotion followed by the next day will be a day of prayer, some prayer points, and, and that will be all the way through the book of Jonah. We'll be doing this for the next 40 days or so and encourage you to be a part of that so that, so that God could transform our hearts individually and our hearts corporately as a body of believers locally so that we might go to Nineveh. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for loving us enough to send storms. Thank you for loving us enough that our sins, uh, they do bring about consequences which hurt. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us in our pain, but that you offer grace. Grace that does not assist us, but grace that delivers us. Lord, thank you for delivering us. Lord, I pray for that person or persons this morning who is yet to receive your grace. Lord, would you break them? in their religiosity, in their self-proclaimed moralism? Would you show them that apart from you, they are nothing and they are lost? And would you cause them, Lord, to long for your presence, that they might receive mercy and grace and not receive the grace of God in vain? Lord, transform us, your people, so that we might be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless, go in grace. We'll see you next week.